All right, this is going to be our third and final installment in this podcast series with Dominic Bergani. In this one, we're going to talk about the importance of knowing some simple load transfer techniques, vertical evacuation concepts for rescue task force, and how principles of rapid intervention crew, vent inner search, and CCP mitigation all play a vital role in this. We're also going to end up talking about safety and rope rescue as a whole, and is being too safe creating additional and too much complexity to the point where we are actually becoming unsafe. And then there's so many ways to to solve that problem is even if you look at the evolution over the last two years on how we teach load transfers, right, not passing or just load transfers as a whole is, one, we realize that that, that is the tipping point for people learning is you may have a really steep curve where they're picking up a lot of stuff, but the second that you get them to grasp load transfers, it's an exponential increase, man. Like they, it's night and day on their scale. As soon as it clicks, the fact that there's a bunch of ways to skin that thing to the point where now, you know, what are we, for the most part, man, we just uh, we rig differently on our anchor, right? We either rig in a shelf or rig on the ends, depending on whether we're doing lowers or, or raises. And we're using that the element version of the the Purcell Prusik. And it, how fast is that, man? Like compared to your radio releases or your hokey hitches or, or all these things. It's something that we're already carrying on us as far as the Purcell and the way we tie it can hold a two-person load and, and it's freaking fast as crap. And, and it was it was together it, down there in the class that we were doing uh, that that whole thing came to fruition is we had to solve – we had them solve a problem only with the equipment they, they had. So they could not bring in anything else to unscrew their system that was pretty screwed up. And in the end, they had to do a load transfer and the only thing they had was one of the guys had a Purcell attached to his harness pulled that off and from there it was like oh my gosh even for us that was a a pretty much a light bulb moment where we're like what can we do with this and (laughs) and from there i think within the next couple days we pretty much had it nailed out to where it really changed a lot of our philosophy on load transfers man whether it's uh passing knots on rappel or it's it's transferring loads onto a different system or it's just simply not passing made a huge difference and not passing or load transfers you know and i say this like every time we talk is I, i think that's that that is one of the most crucial things for any rope rescue technician to just be able to manipulate and exploit in every way possible. Know a bunch of different ways to do it. Even if you have a bunch of tail onto the end of your hull system, being able to tie that off and use the rest of the rope as a second rope, you know, your 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 main rope, tie it off and now you got two ropes kinda and be able to to affect your load transfers in a bunch of different ways because that is your get out of jail free car. A card every day for rope rescue rigging screw-ups you do or somebody else does where you got to come in and unscrew a problem or that knot that was unplanned right we, I, I don't want to say names. We'll, yeah. call it, we'll, we'll call it the the mk yeah we'll call it we'll just use the initials and when he hears it he'll know we're talking about on the the mk instance where no matter what you do you always end up with a rope somehow gets it or not gets in your rope system somehow but yeah i mean it's just for, for that unexpected for anything that's that's it's money, man. That's that's where the magic, that's where the rubber meets the road, man. Yeah. All right. Last topic, man, is Rescue Task Force stuff. Actually, I got a couple extra topics, but we'll start with – this won't be a long one. But Rescue Task Force, you and I are working on some stuff, and there's some unbelievable RTFs. That it's probably really misunderstood. Everybody right now that they're hearing RTFs come out from DHS and FEMA and those documents, Rescue Task Force. I think Arlington was really one of the first ones to coin that terminology and – that's with Reed and Arlington Fire, and those guys are some freaking studs. I saw them a couple of weeks ago up in D.C., and I think a lot of their their RTFs, if I'm not mistaken, originally came off their tech guys. 
the heavy rescue, their technical rescue guys. And those guys are phenomenal, incredible, as you can imagine, with the, the urban terrain that they have around there. But when we look at Rescue Task Force as a whole, as it goes into this active shooter type of augmentation system, you know, the RTF is kind of responsible for getting escorted in quick with PD into the warm zone if you will, through a corridor or whatever the means are of those SOPs, be able to do a rapid triage, rapid, rapid packaging, and an evacuation really quick. And unfortunately, we still see a lot of people on multi-story buildings, you know, even second stories, you know, like your Virginia Tech type of situation where you have a CCP and you have a limited amount of rescue task force guys, you have a limited amount of law enforcement providing security, and people still wanting to go, okay, grab the litter, grab the SCEDCO, and you grab one end, I grab the other, and now we're taking them downstairs and going out the way we came in. And we still have like, what, five or six people in that CCP? You know what I'm saying? Is you're never going to be able to get that many people up there to do that job, flow in with that many security elements. Cops are still trying to clear and, and figure out what the problem is. Where if we just looked at techniques that we use for rapid intervention teams, right? Or we look at concepts of venom or search. And we apply those wheelhouse techniques that we do already, you know, uh, or that you do. I'm no longer in the fire service, but, it, you know, those things that, that are core techniques, right? If we, if we got to go in, why do we have to go in the front front door? You know, why, why can't we throw a 24-foot extension or a roof ladder, whatever it takes to get up to that second or third story, throw that in, go in that window of a building that's potentially already on lockdown, have our security element go in, boom, we're good. Fire goes up, we got a rear security guy, and we just start making the magic happen. And we just do vertical evacuations. I mean, literally, it can be as easy, and we do this all the time, you and I too, is one guy lays on his back with a munter hitch underneath the windowsill. You catch the angle of the front of the windowsill and the terminal 90-degree angle of the other side of the windowsill, and that's taken, what, 70-plus percent of that weight off. And we just start lowering people right to the ground to an armored vehicle or to patrol cars that are unhooking them, throwing them in, and... We can get them out literally in an eighth of the time that it takes to, to go downstairs and all. Well, yeah, and it, it really goes back to what we do as our bread and butter as firemen, right? So we don't in a in a house fire, we we're searching for a victim. We don't, and we find a victim, Granny, in the bedroom. We don't take Granny back out down the snotty hallway, across the living room, and out the front door. We take him out the easiest means of egress, and a lot of that time is out a window. Right. Yep. So and, and like you said, the vent enter search. Right. So you're, you're taking out a window and you're taking your victims out the window and you're shutting the hallway door. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's already shut. But usually it'll already be in lockdown for us. Yeah, too, you know? lockdown. So, yeah, you don't, don't even bother going out into that environment. So, and, you know, and then at an active shooter, there's going to be multiple units on scene. Right. So you're going to have a truck company there. They're going to have ladders. They know how to vent enter search, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Being on the outside is probably safer than being on the inside. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. And, and on top of that, do you really want to go into a hallway, which is technically you're just adding <laughs> chaos into chaos already because you've, yeah. got, you've got guys going through there. So they're still trying to clear. They're still trying to make order of what the hell's going on. They're getting misinformation. Where if you can do surgical rescues and evacuate out of CCPs, that's a thing. And even if you go in – let's say a main breach point or anything like that because it's been cleared when you get into that room you know you can you know with two guys you can evacuate a room of six seven ten injured people really really quick with nothing more than your your bailout rope and a piece of webbing yeah i mean it's it's night and day the speed and the safety is huge too because you don't have to keep going out through that hallway and 
and going in where things are still being cleared and there's still chaos because uh, you're just adding adding chaos to chaos at that point. And I think that people are handcuffing themselves. You know, if it's the fire department, if you're a fire agency and you're tasked with rescue task force, then why don't you rescue the way you know how to rescue? You know, you don't have to con- conform to just some goofy traditional thing that you wouldn't normally do anyways. You know, that's you're still in a you're still in a threat environment. So yeah, we have like we have a, a, a great system that's ready. It's on most of our rigs and it's it's a bag with some rope in it and it's already set up with a little quick pulley system and you click it on the top rung of that that ladder yep. and you put it in the window and you're out. You know, that's it's pre-made stuff that we do, we train on, it's our bread and butter. Yeah, and, and so why not take things that that you already know work in really bad environments to get people out really quick and do that do that. Right, I, I think people would it much rather be, do that than carrying litters of people up and down, up and down, up and down, way out. You know, we look at San Bernardino, the distance they had to take them out to the, that's, yeah, no thanks. It might be one that we don't really train enough on active shooters as of yet. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's got the SOPs, everybody's got some sort of idea what's going to go on, and maybe they've had one joint training with PD. But in, in, in retrospect, we really didn't. We don't have enough training in, on the situation. And the other thing too is, you know, what is a CCP? Where, yeah, oh God. Be. I mean, that's that's probably a whole podcast on its own. Like, why does a CCP have to be in this particular location when everybody's in one lockdown room already? Yep, no, <laughs> you're exactly right. And that's we are. We're planning on doing one. I just got to get a hold of of uh, RG on that one and and do that. He's somebody who's worked a, a asymmetric ton of CCPs um, in really bad environments. And, and I think if we can talk about the principles, you're good, right? How you do it is, is up to you, but here are the principles and here's the some of the practices you need to consider in a CCP. But there's right. a huge, huge city that is in, it is big, metropolitan area, we'll go without names, that I got a call from and it was crazy. They're working on some RTF type stuff and they're in a standstill right now because their fire department is telling their law enforcement that if there's you can't have a CCP inside. In the CCP is on the outside. No, it's like inside a building. Like oh. it, it makes no sense. It, it, that's, that can't be called a CCP if it's inside because you know what are what are we taught, man? As firemen, you know, our CCP is oh, we lay some tarps out, man. It's the motor vehicle accident. That's our, that's our reference point for a CCP, and that is not – that is a circle and a square, man. That is not a CCP for this type of event, and using that type of thing where, oh, this CCP will work in this event too, that's not a thing either. That's oversimplification. You know, you're, you're forcing your uh, – it's like saying tactical combat casualty care is the right thing for civilians, yet civilians aren't rolling around level four body armor and, you know, being – you know, 67% of injuries coming from IEDs at ground level, and it doesn't make sense. So, you know, I, I think there, there needs to be some education in CCP, and there's some stuff going on with Kevin Gerald from the NTOA, Dr. Gerald, who I just got off the phone with. And, and I think that there will hopefully be some really good clarification and some guidance for CCPs because everything with Rescue Task Force, that's where all the worlds collide, man, is in CCPs right now. And we can't really define in one area or another what a CCP actually is and how to manage, how to choose it manage it, mitigate it, yet we're throwing it around like it's, it's a common term that everybody understands. Yeah. Once again, environment dictates how we do things. 
exactly. We can't <laughs> we can't force our way of doing it into something that we can't control, right. which is yep. which is problematic. Last thing I was going to do, and I don't know how you, I'm going to put you on the spot on this one, but one of the things we've been talking about is is certain things with training accidents, and and we we got in this conversation with Tom Evans that you know we do all these things under safety. Okay, we're going to add a belay line. We're going to do a, and we actually didn't even talk about main belay line and two tension systems or anything like that. But we'll hit that for another time. But when we add all these things for, okay, we need it even more safe. Can we make it more safe? Can we make it so safe that our operators don't have to think, which I think is a bad way to go. But what's funny is every time we add these layers of safety in, one, we're adding time into our rigging. And in the end, we're actually supposed to be rescuing somebody. So we're delaying that whole thing. But on top of that, we're adding complexity into our rigging systems to where people have to get things double, triple, quadruple checked. Like, did I rig this right, man? There's all these moving parts. I had to add, do this and this and this. And is this redundant on top of redundant on top of redundant for whatever reason? When in reality, we go back to you know the, the previous rescue we talked about in FDNY where he laid on his back, triple wrapped a, a three-strand rope across a, a carabiner man and, and sent a guy over the edge. But now we have these really complex systems under the guise of safety when in reality, we're probably making the whole thing less safe because we've added complexity into it so much complexity. instead of just just having two munter hitches and i'm not saying do that but i'm just saying that's pretty easy to see you rig that right you rig that right you guys know where to break all right let's do this so i'm not saying that's correct but i'm saying that's a very that's the other end of the spectrum super simple compared to the complexity that we build into it now and you had an interesting occurrence you weren't involved in but was in your area with somebody that basically is out of the fire service now for a training accident when they were training bailout procedures. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy because you had all the best equipment that money could buy being used. You had a, uh, so it was a bailout, bailout drill, uh, for some new guys. They were using a, uh, Sterling light lightning GT hook as their, you know, their primary anchor point in the corner of a window, which to me is the last thing you teach somebody. But they had a belay. They had a belay because they knew that the, the hook would fail um, in the training, you know, as a, as a teaching point that you need to make sure that there's tension on the hook as you're going out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, the, the hook did fail, which it failed several times before the belay caught them. Uh, their belay was, I'm not sure what type of rope. I believe it was a dynamic rope. They actually went with a dynamic rope because they were thinking about the shock loads and a, I believe it was a Petzl ID as their belay device. So everything was right, right? Everything was hooked to the, the rescuer. Um, there were, everything was right, but yet the guy still fell and hit the ground two and a half stories down and, shatters back in i don't know three four maybe five places um and why it didn't it wasn't because of the equipment it was because there was too much going on right so the 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 people that were operating the system they put the end line knot of the belay on the on the the guy that was going out the window he was hooked to the belay you on belay i'm on belay i see the rope attached to me it's going through the device but what what wasn't there was all the slack between the belay device and the actual guy going out the window oh, good Lord. Was, was never taken up, right? So when they reset it from the guy before, they pulled up all the slack rope and put it inside the building and didn't pull it all through the device, which, okay, it's a, it's a bad thing. Um, but 
you know, if you don't pull the rope through the device every single time when you're taking up this to the blade, and that's something that now I'm pretty sure that everyone in our area is well versed at. <laughs> uh, so they know, basically the, had the, the distance down to the ground was the slack that was in the blade. Yeah. So it was yes. clipped, clipped to him, slack was on the ground, it was clicked into the ID, went over, free fell down, and there was the same amount of slack in it that there was at a fall, which, you know, you, you and I have obviously talked about this and a lot of near misses and, and issues that have occurred in training. And, you know, I guess in the end, you know, I don't want to armchair quarterback anybody, man, because cause now the next one's going to be going to be us screwing something up like that. But yeah, yeah. You've, you've got to have some mindfulness man where you know if i'm going out and i'm trying something new the last thing i do is is i safety check myself you know and that may come from just doing a bunch of stuff in in the mountains or in canyons going down waterfalls things like this where it's a sketchy environment so you're, you kind of got a sketchiness in, in, already in the back of your head like all right i th- this is a little pushing the limits here i need to make sure all the variables that could go wrong are cool because there's still a potential for it and maybe there's a bailout man maybe it's it just got Hey, this is this is easy, man. We train people on this all the time. Maybe there was a uh, some sort of lax in in situational awareness, maybe. But as a guy going over the edge, that's the last thing I always check. Is I check every piece. All right, you know my belay. If I have a belay, which we obviously don't use a whole bunch, but if we, I, we obviously get hooked up on the belays when we're doing bed sheets and junk like that, is yeah, I make sure that okay, that's tension. I make sure that I have to tell that guy to give me some slack to even get out a window when we're when we're doing certain things. And then I have somebody else double check it, and then on top of that, whoever's running it needs to check that. And I think that, uh, man, that that's just a tough break. Yeah, more than one place. Yeah. Um, it's it's you know you had the guy who was bailing out, and the guy who's bailing out is brand new. He doesn't know what the blade devices even looks like. And he has confidence so, in who's working. Yeah, yeah. confidence in the guys that he was with, and they're all technicians. But that day, you know, they probably repped it out. 15 times previous and they got complacent and uh and it comes down to personnel right yeah that's how human, much human error human error and, and it can happen so real unfortunate thing and you know we're praying for the guy yeah that's for sure and you know it comes down to kind of what we started off with too is is no we can make equipment as safe as you want it to but if we don't have the the right training the right uh, i don't know we don't want to simplify things so much where it becomes a no-brainer because there's always a human factor in rope rescue you know and no matter what expensive equipment or how much we try and make equipment fail safe for the lowest common denominator out there it's still going to come down to like you've got to know some principles and you've got to stay on your game so amen all right All right, man. Well, we're pushing it, man. This is going to probably be like a two or three part series. So anything else you want to get off your chest? Tell me about your childhood. Childhood's all blur. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I got to do a little practicing on my banjo to keep up my Irish, uh, Irish Italian uh, ties. You keep that. We're going to adopt you when you move up here, man, into the, into the mountains. You're going to be up in the Scott Irish area and uh, we're, we're going to ready. We're gonna, yeah. We're going to change your last name, put a no in front of that. And, no, uh, <laughs> or a Mick, man. You'd be a Mick like me. Listen, Dom, I appreciate your time, brother. And it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure, brother. And we'll talk soon, bro. Stay safe. Talk right. to you. All right.